Hey folks, welcome to The Sacred Speaks. My name is John Price, I'm your host, and I'd like to share a dilemma with you. I would like to streamline these intro pieces as much as possible, but I also have a lot of cool things going on. So if you would, go over to Instagram, follow The Sacred Speaks, and that way I can communicate all the classes, lectures, workshops, and related platforms that I want to support for The Sacred Speaks. I've got a lot of cool folks that I've connected with through this process, and I want to have a, um, an opportunity to let you all know what's going on with them as well as what's going on with me and The Sacred Speaks. So do that real quick. The Sacred Speaks is the handle, and uh, thank you for your interest. So let's get to Dr. Rachel Harris. I'd like to read her bio and then do a couple of just uh, pointing you in a couple of directions. Uh, check out Rachel's website at swimminginthesacred.com as soon as you can. And here is her bio. Dr. Rachel Harris is a respected psychologist, prolific author, and eminent figure in the realm of psychospiritual development. She spent 35 years in private practice focus, focusing on individuals seeking psychospiritual growth. Rachel has an impressive research career, having received a National Institute of Health New Investigators Award and publishing over 40 scientific studies in peer-reviewed journals. She's also shared her expertise with Fortune 500 companies. Rachel participates participated in the 1968 Esalen Residential Pro Program, an extensive six-month meditation and bodywork course. She also studies structural awareness, a movement system found, founded on Dr. Ida Rolf's structural integration. The awareness of body consciousness deeply influences her psychotherapeutic approach. In the mid-80s to early 2000s, Rachel facilitated workshops at esteemed institutions like the Omega Institute in New York or Esalen Institute in California. She's the author of 20-Minute Retreats, which details the exercises she taught in her workshops. A serendipitous encounter with ayahuasca in Costa Rica in 2005 sparked Rachel's interest in the therapeutic potential of this medicine. This led to a three-year research project culminating in, quote, a study of ayahuasca use in North America and her influential book, Listening to Ayahuasca, New Hope for Depression, Addiction, PTSD, and Anxiety. She's recently authored Swimming in the Sacred, Wisdom from the Psychedelic Underground, which is the book we discussed today. Also, you can check out our, her earlier episode on The Sacred Speaks, where we discuss her book, Listening to Ayahuasca. Check her out. I am very fond of Rachel. Uh, you will be able to see why very quickly. Um, of course, the, uh, the Sacred Speaks is sponsored by the Center for the Healing Arts and Sciences, a boutique integrative practice that my wife, Leela Scott Price, and I started. Check us out at vcenter4has.com. Then check out uh, the Young Center, of course, younghouston.org. There will be classes coming up, and just to, uh, before, before the Instagram uh, information page starts, um, the class for June 7th will be on Psychedelics and Religion. I'll be teaching. It's four Wednesdays. And uh, uh, of course, as always, check out The Sacred Speaks at thesacredspeaks.com. And the theme music is from Modern Nations. Check them out at modernnationsmusic.com. And if you hang out to the end of the episode, you'll be able to hear the full selection of the song Clouds. Uh, for now, please like and share this episode, the website, and the Instagram page to anybody you think would be of interest, would, would be interested in this project. And um, I'm just excited to keep doing it. So keep watching. Uh, for now, we'll leave it there. For those of you tuning in, welcome. I have Dr. Rachel Harris here, and we're going to dig into her book, Swimming in the Sacred.
And of course, check the show notes and look for the website. But Rachel, I'm so excited. You've been in my mind. I've been listening to our earlier interview that we did years ago on your book, Listening to Ayahuasca. And that was such a fun conversation, a meaningful stage in my own process in this podcast. And to reconnect with you in this way and to congratulate you on this wonderful book, I, I, I'm, I'm so excited to dig into this with you. Um, be, I think it's because you're such a, a, you have that mind of the psychologist, the researcher, you're religiously, spiritually minded, but you've also had practices. And so I'm, uh, I have a feeling that we're just going to be able to go to so many wonderful places. I'm just about to burst. Thank you. <laughs> well, thank you. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, me too. Um, so I, I, of course, want to take you through a couple of quotes in your book. Um, and, and But I, as I began our last interview, I'm, I'm very interested in your process and why this particular book, why this particular subject. And then we'll dig into all the little tendrils and slender threads off that. But could you talk about your process as we begin? Well, I, I hope you're not assuming I have a conscious process. <laughs> <laughs> that would Some, be your first mistake in this interview. Yeah, something's working through you, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So with the listening to Ayahuasca book, when that came out, I met a lot of people. Mm. And I spent the winter in the Bay Area, so... There are a lot of people out there involved. And um, a few of them, you know, trusted me because of mm -hmm. they read the book and they trusted me. And so they began to talk to me. And then they opened the door for me to talk to other women who have been working underground. And uh, so lo and behold, I had a process. But I can tell you my first big mistake in this process, and that was, that I thought these women were psychedelic psychotherapists mm -hmm. and that I'd be talking to therapists. Well, they're not. They're absolutely not therapists. Maybe out of 15 who I interviewed, maybe one or two has a degree and really only one is licensed. Mm. So that tells you. Um, and uh, they're, the closest I can re relate to them as a group is that they're priestesses. And we don't really have a cultural category for these women. And so I had to get very clear very early that they were not shepherding or accompanying a therapeutic process that they don't think like that. And so I had to get off of my way. Um, I, I was a psychotherapist most of my life, either doing therapy or in therapy and or both, not at the same time, hopefully. But I had to let go of those kinds of frameworks and conceptualizations and questions and go with them. And so they are really priestesses of the medicine is the best way I can mm -hmm. say it. Well, you're actually, you're hitting into my first question, which oh, great. I, could, I, could, I could feel that you were working through that question about psychotherapy and guide or facilitator and what is that. Yeah. And so just to say this, you, you interviewed 15 elders, female elders in the tradition of entheogens and ceremonial space. And you, you have a researcher's mind in both, both of these books, you know, you've got that desire, that curiosity to understand. And so you, you're introduced to this subject. You're obviously gained, you gained access to specialized places because you're able to cultivate trust quickly. I, I know that to be true. And, and then, okay, the rest unfolds, right? So 
and and I had a I had a uh, an inclusion criteria of they had to have practiced underground for twenty years, and most of them had practiced thirty or forty years. So this is a really select group of women, thirty well, or forty years practicing. Yeah, and set that up because we are involved in a stage of our cultural development where psychedelics are in the foreground in a lot of ways. And, and you've seen a lot of territory surrounding this, this subject matter. So w would you talk about your experience as far as the receptivity of the larger, the culture at large to psychedelics currently versus even 20 years ago? Well, this is, I think the receptivity of the culture is really due to the research studies. Uh, that's where the it, the data is so good, and that's where the article the articles are coming from the academic research teams. And because we're so much more sophisticated as researchers than way back in the '60s, when we were, when there was some element of research going on before everything got shut down, now we have you know insight into the brain and what's happening during the journeys. I mean, this is this is incredible. So. Uh, it opens many, many doors, but the doors are open mostly to the medical culture. To mm -hmm. and this is wonderful because it's to, it's really to help people who have been treatment resistant with depression or PTSD, or um, they're dying. I mean, these are really sympathetic groups of people, and if the medicines can help them, we certainly want to help them. But also. It's a very limited cost-effective approach to using the medicines to reduce symptoms. And that's not what these women elders have been doing mm -hmm. for almost half a century. And they've been working in kind of a more pure spiritual realm. And and the, there's the, the elder, the eldest of the elders I refer to. And she said, um, even if these medicines become legal, I would continue to work underground because that's where the sacred container is. Well, that's and a that, cool thought. You know, that's a, it's true, um, you know, in many ways. And there was a recent article in uh, the New York Times that they found some remnants of bodies that were 3,000 years old in what they called a burial cave on an island off the coast of Spain. And they analyzed the hair remnants and they found evidence of psychotropic drugs in the hair for the year before the person died. So, you know, 3000 years ago, they were using medicines as preparation for death to die before you die in an underground cave. I mean, the concept of the underground is pretty ancient and it's it's far deeper and bigger than symptom reduction. And I'm as enamored with the research results as anybody. And um, and that's not everything. There are other perspectives that I don't want to be lost. Well, that sets us up really well, as you did in the book, of course, that, I mean, we are in a tradition where uh, if it hurts, we want it to stop hurting. And so psychotherapeutic, um, intervention writ large tends to be um, directed at reduction of symptoms. And not, not all folks know that. I mean, they go to the therapist to, to kind of collude a bit in that um, agenda. 
So would you talk, would you differentiate those a bit about what psychotherapy is and why something like a psychedelic process um, will complement said process? I don't, I don't think I, 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 I want to change the question to uh, sort of to look at both systems. So I don't, Yes, the the research studies are using psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. So there is a complementary role, but that's not how the women elders are using it. They're using it as an independent freestanding process may or may not be related to psychotherapy. I mean, they can always refer people to a therapist and they may not. And the, the, the spiritual underground process of using these medicines stands alone in its own right that's why i objected to the word complement of psychotherapy mm -hmm. there's an independent process of unfolding and in fact i mean a big contrast is the research studies give you to be cost effective maybe the the intervention takes place over three months maybe and um the way the elders practice underground is their people, their clients may come in once every six months, once a year, they may bring family members, they may bring a partner. There's an ongoing process that continues. Um, one woman said, you know, my clients become my sisters. Mm. It, this therapists don't talk like that. <laughs> this is this is an ongoing process. And the archetype example is um, Albert Hoffman, who was the chemist who um, synthesized LSD 25, he lived to be like 104 or something. I might be a year or two off. So that's a very long life. Well, his last acid trip when <laughs> was when he was 97 years old. So this is a very different way of holding the medicines. We can look forward to an acid trip when we're 97. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing, and I but I want to push on this too, and and get us deeper because I love what you're doing regarding push, pushing back on the question that I asked. That that these these are standalone, and my see what you think about this because Jung wrote a paper in um, I forget which psychology and religion or whatever one of his collected works, where there's an essay called Psychotherapy or Clergy. And he's essentially talking about the, the split where we became more secularized as a culture and psychotherapy ended up taking on some of the um, agenda from a cultural perspective that the priesthood or the clergy did. Some, some psychotherapists did. Yeah. Well, you made this distinction, in, and I don't want to be too biased here, but you said in our previous interview that oftentimes you're not having a kind of religious or spiritual experience in therapy unless you're talking to a Jungian and I, I think there because there is a confluence between religion and psychology and the Jungian tradition yeah. so uh, for people who may not know this distinction because we're we're certainly inundated with psychotherapy assisted psych uh, psychedelic assisted psychotherapies that's what we're hearing a lot about so just talk about that movement and, and how you got into this insight regarding the standalone religious process that these women are facilitating. <laughs> All right. So I was starting out talking to people 
And I was talking to Connie Grouts. She's not an underground. Uh, uh, she's she's not doing journeys underground. She's taking people to Peru to introduce them to the um, to nature in the rainforest. Wow. Um, so I can talk about her and I have her permission to talk about her. Yeah. So we were, um, I was asking her, you know, I, she's a good friend. I know her well. And I was asking her my usual psychotherapy questions, none of which I can remember, but it, I was clearly speaking as a therapist. And we were in a girlfriend, we were in the kitchen of a friend of mine. I remember clearly standing in the kitchen. And my experience and my memory is she turned to me and got right in my face, practically nose to nose. And she screamed at me and said, you know, something like, stop the psychotherapy. This is not about therapy. Stop it. <laughs> so, yeah, and we talked and she pretty much said, this is about transformation. It's, it's not about getting better. It's about transformation. So then, and we continued in the afternoon and, and hours later, Connie left and I talked, I turned to my friend and I said, did Connie yell at me? <laughs> and my friend said, what do you mean? She didn't yell at you. I said, did she get in my face and yell at me? My friend said, no, never. And I said, well, my memory is. <laughs> so what she did was she used her shamanic energy and shocked me out of my psychotherapy prejudice and worldview. And, you know, it worked. That's what cured me in my process of interviewing people. So I was better able to understand, oh, something else entirely is going on. And I do have to stop with the psychotherapy questions. Would you define that? What do you mean by psychotherapy? What's that worldview? Oh, well, you know, I was asking about, um, you know, childhood experience, you know, personal history, childhood experiences, trauma, you know, how, how do you think this works? How does, how, how do you think healing happens with personal history? It's like, stop it. <laughs> it's about transcending personal history mm. and transforming. I mean, this is a whole different way of looking at Change doesn't do justice to it, really only the concept of transformation. Well, um, William James talked about a conversion experience where there's a whole shift in in the architecture of the psyche. You know, Fritz Perls used to say, people come to therapy, you referenced this, why do people come to therapy? He used to say, people come to therapy to get better at their neurosis. <laughs> they want to... <laughs> They want to continue with their neurosis. They just wanted to have a better outcome. Mm. And these medicines are not about adjustment or, or having a better outcome of your neurosis. It's really about reorganizing the psyche and, um, and a, a real different way of being in the world so that there's, there's a shift. I, this is the most repeated word there's an inner shift in how the personality is organized and i think jung points to this you have to help me because i'm not a trained jungian analyst but he he has for me a couple of clues and um one is when he says the numinous experience is what's healing mm -hmm. 
And I think in that sense, he's talking about transformation. And then at one point in his life, you know, after years and years of work, he said, when people come to me, I send them to really his student, his other analysts, to work on the personal history. After they've done that work, then they come to him. So he's already making that distinction of their other levels of work to be done beyond the personal history. Yeah, that to me this does seem like, and pardon, pardon any Freudian in the room, but there's a there's a reduction that tends to happen in our psychotherapeutic tradition where we are looking for the kind of cause, the original germ, you know, that created this I, issue. Yeah, and and it, uh, I, I think I'm definitely a both andist in this place, and that we need to tend to some of that. And you noted in your book at one point where. Jung, Jung wouldn't work with people who hadn't already done psychotherapy. Yes, and, and yes. I think that's a, that's a really important factor that people listening may not know about. We use, again, these distinctions are on the way that Jung really looked at it. It's not about going back and realizing the deterministic worldview that influences how we show up current day, but, but really looking forward at this uh, at the way in which the the universe works on us and shapes um, and uh, shapes us and we relate to that experience. Um, what would you say to that or how do you expand that or deepen it? Well, you know, most of my, uh, I had a boutique psychotherapy practice for 35 years because people knew that my roots came out of Esalen, that I led workshops at different places. So, so I would, and also, I wasn't very good with um, children or people who were at risk for suicide or um, mm. psychosis. I wasn't very good with, you know, the more hospitals, you know, people who might be in and out of a hospital. So my real gift was with people who were interested in psychospiritual growth. And I really say my practice was to do the kindergarten work to do the basic family history work so that they could move beyond it. Because if they don't do that basic work, they will become inflated. It will bite them in the ass. Mm. It will make them, you know, harm other people. It'll come up in one way or another. So I was very big on that, um, that family of origin work for that to be cleaned out as as best we can and of course you know we recycle through it our whole mm -hmm. lives but still to have greater awareness and and elegance dealing with it it's not like we erase our history but how we manage it and deal with it can become more elegant uh and so I, and and if we don't do that and we dive into these other realms with the medicines we're going to be inflated. And you may have noticed there seems to be a lot of inflation going on in oh, the yeah. so-called psychedelic renaissance. And so there's no getting around this basic work. Um, and I think psychotherapy is the way to go with that. <clears throat> then, you know, and then there are these stories <clears throat> where, you know, one person said, I had this experience in an ayahuasca ceremony, and I have no more anger toward my father. Mm -hmm. Now, I have to tell you, he had done years and years of therapy, Jungian analysis. He'd done, you know, ton, decades of work. 
but this 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 kind of transformative experience comes from the medicines. Yeah, you mentioned there's, a, there's another level of healing that they offer. Yeah, and that is where I do think the Jungian community really can make sense of this, because that that split that I'm talking about between Freud and Jung was, you know, the medical complex. And you reference this a number. I'm going to start reading quotes from you in a little bit, but you reference the materialistic worldview, and we were just in a clinical meeting today talking about how. You know, if you can't measure it and observe it, then it doesn't exist in our current worldview yeah. and how problematic yeah. that is. Right. And Jung was doing something different with active imagination. He was he was essentially saying that there's a mythic gr ground of our um, subjective experience, our inner world, and that there are figures and forces that carry autonomous personalities that have an effect on the ways in which we live our lives. But because of the primacy of our ego inflation, we deny or repress or project all of those um, unconscious aspects of that mythic dynamic out into the world, or we just let it retreat and recede into the oceanic <laughs> unconscious world. But what I like about what these women that you're talking about are doing is that they are creating opportunities for people to encounter, to be encountered by these inner figures that... We, you, you and I at one point had a, an agreement that we weren't too sure what is ontologically happening about, you know, is there... <laughs> Let's not go there. Let's no, I know. I know. That. I, I know. Are they real or not? We'll just ignore that. Yeah. And uh, I can tell you to these women, they're real. Yeah. No and, question. So, yeah, go there. Like what, let's get into that, like the spirit the spirit, you know, aspect of this. I'm not even, I'm, I'm not even sure what mythic means. Does mythic imply they're not real? No, not at all. I, although, okay, yeah, although it's funny that uh, Karl Ruck, I loved his distinction. He said myth, <laughs> myth is, is, is what is uh, f false for you, but true for me. You know, there's. <laughs> that's there's, wonderful. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. That's yeah. great. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, uh, yeah. All I mean is that the the dream world, you know, that um, that the dream nature that populates our our consciousness when we're asleep, but also we see reflected in mythologies throughout all of culture. You know, religious mythologies are are patterned aspects of our uh, of of a, of a collective inner world that um, that we relate to seemingly in these stories, but it really exists in us. See, I get a little nervous with the use of the word myth or dream. So I, I think I refer to them as unseen others. I love this too. And the, the other thing you do is you call it visionary that I really liked. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. So unseen others, let's take that thread. So the, the, the medicine women, you know, these elders have ongoing relationships with the plants and the medicines. And... Uh, you know, this is something that's difficult for the university research teams. <laughs> How can they talk about this? So I, I have some quotes from the women. Oh, please. The medicines want to know whether we're active partners cultivating our relationship with them. Mm -hmm. he, he get, you know, this is alive. There's no question. Um, I can feel the plants are a part of me inside my body. 
this is a, this is not just an an encounter with a, a an image. This is a relationship that's working and continues mm -hmm. to unfold over a lifetime. And the contrast with the research studies is that Hopkins did a an internet study of encounters with an entity. They got a couple of thousand responses. Have you ever encountered an entity? Do you, you know this study under, and then they divided it by what was the drug used, LSD, DMT, you know, all these different categories. And the mistake they made is they did not ask about relationships. This was a team of mostly men, if I can't remember if there was even a woman on the study. And I only knew to ask about, do you have an ongoing relationship with the spirit of ayahuasca, which was what blew my mind in the listening to ayahuasca book, is because I had interviewed one of these women I then interviewed again for the, for this book and asked her to look at my, my uh, questionnaire and what am I missing? And she said, ask them if they have an ongoing relationship with the spirit of ayahuasca. 80% of the people said yes. Wow. <laughs> no, wait a minute. It was 76%. It was 81 in the study. 76% said yes. That's that's more accurate. Really, it blew my mind. Yeah. And I only knew to ask that question because she told me to, and I just did what she told me. But here it is again with these elders, and she's the one link between the two books and the two and the two studies is that she knew there's a relationship that's ongoing. Some, um, it, as you use the medicines over time, the process becomes more refined. You get more specific help. <laughs> these, these are unseen others that are very real and present in these women's lives and in their work. So it, it reminds me of a time I interviewed a woman named Tanya Lerman, and she wrote a oh, book yeah. called When <laughs> God you. Talks Back. Yes, no, yes. it was totally lucky me. Yes. Um, she's amazing. And uh, yes. I, I'm reminded of it because she said, not only did that she live for two years, I think she lived with a community of evangelical Christians that did things yeah. like make a cup of coffee to have with yes. God and engage. Yeah. But then she also lived with a coven of witches in England when she was yes. at Oxford doing her... I think that was her dissertation. Dissertation, yes. So yeah. so um, what was so cool about what she said is, is look, John, I, I, I don't know what's real or not, but when people talk to God, weird stuff happens. And I watched it happen. It was weird. It was mysterious. It was outside yeah, they're, they're... of the of the, the the way in which we can understand uh, reality given our current worldview. And then, she, you know, also with the witches, she said weird stuff happened, and I watched it happen. And so there, what I think is so fascinating about what you're saying is that these, like certainly the psychedelic space is a very profound place to experience and gain access to a relationship with these unseen others. There are other ways to do it too, of course. But what I see in the psychedelic space is that it very quickly inspires a worldview that considers the unseen other um, to be a figure that, or a figures, a series of figures that one can relate with. 
And so what do you think is the, like, what do you say to that? Like, psychedelics as a ceremonial practice and relating with unseen others, that's radical. It's, it changes the worldview. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's part of the transformation. Because as we shift out of everything has to be material, real means material and measurable, as we escape from that cultural limitation, you know, we enter a much bigger world that has many more possibilities. And so transformation happens in that bigger world. It doesn't happen in our psychotherapy cause and effect and figuring out the determinants of behavior. It, transformation happens in a much bigger world with more mystery in it. Well, and this is the thing that you kept talking about where, and Rilke talks about this, that do you change the way you live your life? You, symptom reduction doesn't necessarily change the way you live your life. You may be able to tolerate what's happening to you more, but there's not some kind of ethical change that helps you shift your worldview. And that's why I think these compounds and certainly the religious practice of psychedelics offers up a destabilization of the, the worldview world we've ingested to disrupt the ways in which we perceive reality. And in, in my experience, when somebody has that just once, there's forever the question. Like, I don't know what it is, but I know it's not what it, it presents itself to be. And just having that experience changes the way one lives one's life. Anything? Well, you know who wrote about this in a totally non-psychedelic way? was um, the people who wrote about quantum change. You, you know, those couple of studies? No, go, please. Oh, oh, you have to read those. I, I think they're from the 90s, and then they came out with a book. But they, through a newspaper ad, they advertised for people who felt they had basically a religious conversion experience. Hmm. And, and then a, a feat of uh, <laughs> follow-up research is they found a good number of the same people 10 years later and they interviewed them again, and their lives were transformed. Their their priorities, their values in life changed completely. So, and this has nothing to do with medicines, drugs, or anything. This is just a spontaneous experience that they felt was a religious experience, a religious spiritual opening, and their values and priorities changed, and they changed in ways that we recognize as predictable. You know, seeing more commonality and uh, among people and and plants and the environment and more conservation more charitable i mean in all the ways we hope people especially the republicans if you don't mind my saying so ways that we hope they'll change <laughs> um i mean this is this was sort of the hope of the 60s well you know everyone will drop acid and and we'll have peace in the world and that didn't really work all that well mm -hmm. but but there is always that hope that that people will have this kind of a transformative uh, personal experience that then transforms the way they are in the world. And, and let me give you a quote that speaks to this. Where did I put that? I, oh, I put it under a category of humanity. There's a bigger message come. This is the quotes from the women I interviewed. There's a bigger message coming from the medicine, larger than individual psychological healing. These are different women. This 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 hmm. statement uh, just landed with me very strongly. 
We are responsible for our intentions and our choices, responsible to ourselves and to humanity. That's a pretty big perspective. And then I have the quote, a quote from Gary Snyder, who is not one of the women I interviewed, right? The poet Gary Snyder, the environmentalist. Ultimately, all such journeys are done for the sake of the whole, not as some private quest. Mm. So what a big, expansive perspective this is. And so there's an inner transformation, a personal transformation, and then there's a transformation of the way the person relates to the world and their sense of responsibility for the world. So it, my wife and I, we, we run this wellness practice together. And so we're, she's does traditional Chinese medicine and acupuncture and herbs. And I'm of course doing Western psychoanalytic, um, psychology, Jungian psychology. And we're talking a lot. Not only that, we are a husband and wife, and we own a business together, and we are raising kids together. And so there's yeah. this. Wow. I, I would be remiss if I didn't query your um, something you said earlier, but also the setup of your book. I mean, you interviewed all women, and you also oh, earlier, you, yeah, you also <laughs> said that. <laughs> you also said that um, of the, uh, uh, most, the majority of the, the people that were participating in the research at Johns Hopkins were men. And so there were, there were biases because they, they didn't have any women, so to speak, sitting at the table. And so would you speak to this? Because the, there does seem to be something in our culture that, is, um, that, that, needs, that needs to have a kind of feminine voice. Well, one, one of the ways I say it is these women, are the women who I interviewed are silenced twice. They're silenced because they've been working illegally. They can't speak about it publicly. But they're also silenced because of their gender. And so here's an example. In 2022, a book came out in honor of Stan Groff. Mm -hmm. And it was a collection of papers. So there were, I, I, I may have these numbers slightly wrong, but not that wrong. I think there were 22 chapters. There were three women authors. Mm -hmm. <laughs> One was the second author. One was dead for a good number of years. And one was the first author. 2022, yeah. that should not happen. Yeah. So we, and and some women talked about you know, being included at conferences on a panel of women in psychedelics, which is sort of like, you know, a special category that people can skip that session. So, you know, it, to be able to stand up and, and be a presenter, to have women equal presenters, I mean, it. some of the conferences are organized that way and they're beginning to pay attention. But there's a whole pipeline of women who who need to become PhDs and and mm -hmm. enter into research and and get grants and and you know function at high levels in academic institutions there are a lot of barriers along the way so it's going it's still going to take a number of decades and and there there is there's an important clinician at uh, Hopkins whose name oh it would be wonderful if you if you could help me but she's given presentations and she's really well regarded. And um, is it she's Mary? Yeah, yeah. Cosimo. Cosimo. Yeah. Cosimo. 
I'm yeah, speaking yeah. with her in uh, in a few weeks where she's set yeah, up to, for the I'll interview. Ask her what it's been like as a woman on that research team. I certainly will. Yeah. The, the other thing is I had a lovely afternoon at one of the conferences where I spent, you know, there was a little section of a, with beanbag chairs behind some old bedspreads at one of these big conferences. And I spent a good, like three hours back there with one of the leading and very uh, prestigious underground male um, practitioners. And we talked and talked and shared. And I really, I basically got his whole story. And uh, it's different from the, there's a different quality. The I, women. It's literally the word I'm writing down right now. I, I You have to speak to this. I'm, I'm excited to explore this. It's a, it's a different relationship to the medicines. There's a more, I mean, he told me his whole life history, his father, you know, I really got like a, we had a wonderful afternoon. I, this is a guy who's highly respected and I, I think he's amazing. But the women have an intimate relationship with the medicines. I remember interviewing one woman in her little, she had a little studio in her garden by the house. And as I was leaving, it was about five o'clock in the afternoon. And I'd been there a good couple of hours, not for the first interview, but one of many. And she said, well, now um, I ha I have to drink some medicine tonight. And I, I said, well, you're not doing a ceremony. Nobody's there, right? And she said, well, I'm serving the medicine tomorrow night. So I have to know this medicine tonight. Yeah. I have to eat this medicine tonight. That's a different way of talking about one's practice, one's relationship to the medicine, acknowledging that every plant combination is slightly different. I have to meet this medicine tonight. And it's a high level of integrity and commitment and an ongoing process of developing her own relationship to the medicine. Well, that's... Uh... You know, I know not, you and I've connected through Tony Bossas and what a lovely man he is. And part of our, our frustration that we've shared together is this idea that the um, the experience, you know, the visionary experience can somehow, that, that the visionary experience is not the the mechanism for transformation, it's the molecule. And that's part of the bias in this materialistic model is it's like, let's Let's take LSD and somehow synthesize it so that there's a medicinal compound, but you don't have an alternate state of consciousness. Well, th that research is going on in California. It, it, <laughs> UC Davis. Well, I, la a... I laugh because it, it does yeah. seem like what we're talking about is a community of people who are that would suggest that the medicine. I mean, as you say, I want to start reading some of these quotes. Um, the, on page six, you say change is not inherent in the drug itself. Healing depends on how the medicine is used, the support of the guide, the intentions. And also, of course, as we're saying, the continued relationship with the visionary world. And obviously that's very that's different. A, that's a wonderful phrase. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it reminds me of all the references you make to Tom Cheatham and Henry Corbin and the, you know, that... Well, I, I, you know, I just have to say, I just had some emails exchanged with Tom Cheatham and he had, um, he had an experience. And one of the things I said to him, which was like seeding, you know, I'm just sort of planting little seeds. 
And I said a phrase like, dreams will come. <laughs> you know, somewhat poetic, but really, you know, I'm not just saying pay attention to your dreams or, you know, um, dreams will come. It's mm. that relationship to that visionary world mm. and things open up and messages come and we're guided by them. I mean, you know, I read that thing that the help becomes more specific. Isn't that interesting? Totally. The help becomes more specific. And so that I just felt like women have that uh, just a more natural um, attunement to unseen help. So would you say, because there seems like there are two threads here. The first is a bias that that it's a that's a, a male dominated space and so there aren't as many seats at the table for women and that's argument number one but the other argument is kind of deeper and more psychological that there's in fact a way of seeing the world that is somewhat tied to the masculine and the feminine would you agree with that maybe you know i know when they do research studies about men and women they're the the normal curves are tremendously overlapped you know, so it's like men are not better at mathematics than women. There's just a huge overlap of the the normal curves. So I I feel hesitant to say anything so definitive. Mm -hmm. But one I, I do quote from a male um, underground someone who is indigenously trained, and he says, "Women know more about suffering because of it, it, this." Really surprised me this is a guy in his 70s or so when he said this women know more about suffering because they've they've lived with their their monthly periods mm -hmm. and many of them have childbirth experiences so they have these opportunities to deal consciously with predictable suffering and it's a it's a very insightful interesting statement um that i had i had personally never thought of so there are real differences. I, I, I don't want to be the one who says definitively, you know, and the other thing that you haven't referred to, which I think is very polite of you, but here's the confession is I didn't want to listen to the men. I didn't want to, I didn't want to spend hours yeah. taking notes and listening to the men. And that's absolutely my bias. And I hope I don't have to confess that in many interviews. <laughs> yes, <please>. Sorry. <laughs> But nor nor do I take offense to it. I think that's oh good, thank you. No, not at all. I, I think I tell women all the time because I work with a lot of women in my clinical practice, and you're you're suggesting something that I think is really profound and powerful about menstruation, and that yeah. when we look at the way cultures are built around our rites of passage, there's something physiologically oriented that's cyclical that women go through in mass, right? Like in, in we're talking, uh, of course, there are individual differences, but in mass, women inherently have this cycle and they're connected with nature, you know, the lunar cycle. Men have, this is again, this gets tricky, but men have typically had to go out and create these rituals in community and in group outside of the hearth. You know, they, they so they tend to enact the, the same kinds of rituals, but they're outside of their physiological space. They're created culturally. And so what women, which what I urge women to do all the time is, is they need to create their red tent. 
you know, the women need to have these sacred circles and to, to build these spaces because I know a lot of men's groups. I know a lot of men, and I'm a part of many, that go out and create really intimate connections and do, do radical experiences together. And, and that, that's, that's powerful territory, and I'm honored and blessed to be a part of some of those communities. But women, I don't hear as much creating these kinds of um, insular... Uh, specialized places and that I actually really respect and um, I respect the fact that you did that, that you did put that boundary out. So I I think that was an important move on your part. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I've been a little concerned I might get blamed for it, but it's, it's the truth and I'm, I'm willing to confess it, but I'm trying to hide it. Not doing a very good job of that. I know. Look at you. You're getting it all out there. Well, uh, but speaking to that, you know, I'm, you didn't want to hear what men had to say. Why? What was the annoyance? Well, I, you know, I've listened to a lot of men all my life. <laughs> you know, <Sorry. laughs> what can I say? I was born yeah. in 1946. The men have not shut up for decades. <laughs> so I was really intent on um, elevating women's voices. Good for you, yeah. And and the other thing is, um, you know. What women did, one of the first movements in the so-called women's liberation movement, maybe after they burned the bras, is they began meeting in consciousness-raising groups mm-hmm. that evidently you weren't invited to. So women were meeting before the men's groups took off. Yeah. The women were meeting, and they were consciousness-raising groups, and they were they were support groups for each other. And And this is the essence of women's friendships, is this kind of sharing and and but I think you're talking about something even bigger than men's groups or women's groups, and that is, um, how do we hold these cultural initiation sacred um, transitions and transformations? How how does our culture have a place for these s- sacred ceremonies? And. Um, you know, so far, we have a medical place. Uh, yeah, we don't like uh, have an illegal place. Yes, <laughs> we have a recreational place. We sort of have nature-loving places, <laughs> but a sacred place. I mean, if I'm calling these women priestesses, yeah, where's where where is the sacred cave? Where is the sacred temple? Well, let me put that question back on you. Well, I you know we haven't created it yet mm. and the, so uh i'm i i have great concern for what this means that we don't have a a, a place to hold and support the sacred journeys yeah and we don't and and you know i i i, I write about my own experience when i realized Oh, I, I had experience in the 60s, in the late 60s when I was in California, big surprise. I had experience with, with medicines, but I was out in nature and I was with people and it was fun and it was spiritual. And and I had never done the protocol with the earphones and, mm-hmm. and the eye mask. And so I I immediately set up an appointment with one of the elders to do this. And it was very, it's very different, you know, and I think of, 
um, the one of the containers we had in the 60s, I didn't do it because uh, I can't stand the music or crowds, is that people did a lot of drugs with the Grateful Dead. And sure. that was one of the containers for holding these transformative medicines. But it didn't change the culture or the world. I mean, all those thousands of people who attended concerts and took something, it didn't have an impact on the culture or society. So I think we need something that's more transformative. I know, I, I don't mean to belittle those Grateful Dead experiences because I know people were transformed by them, changed by them. I have a friend who died maybe five or six years ago. And and because I know him, because we live on this small island, we all know intimate details about each other. So there's just almost nothing is secret, almost nothing. But anyway... <laughs> I know that when he sat in the doctor's office and the doctor said to him, you have terminal cancer and maybe a year to live, his immediate response was, okay, I'm prepared. I dropped a lot of acid in the 60s. <laughs> and he followed the Grateful Dead. This was a Harvard lawyer. <laughs> practice law, but just to give you a clue, he dropped out. I mean, he finished law school, became a lawyer, and then followed the Grateful Dead. But... 50 years later, here, here's that experience coming forth. I'm ready to die. I mean, it's, mm. who says that to it? You know, doctors hate this conversation. Mm. You have terminal cancer and I can't help you. And someone says, I'm ready. That's, that's, that's from extensive use of, of LSD and, and God knows what else following the Grateful Dead. Did you write? Did you write about that in Bhutan? Or you did, because you, you had the We Croak reference in your book, which I love. Yeah, right. yeah I want to say that you wrote about how in Bhutan they're the happiest. Croak. Yeah, oh, no, I love it. I'm actually That's hilarious. <laughs> I, speaking of which, I'm in a, a men's group with a fellow who's going to be on the podcast eventually, and um, he's in his eighties, and and he recommended We Croak to me. A year ago, I've had that thing on my phone. I love it. I get all these. Y'all check out whoever's watching. Check out We Croak. It's also in the book. But what what stuck out to me was, and not, tell me if I get this wrong, but you, you fix it. That there is a process wherein the bodies of the deceased are set out in a public space, and the vultures come and like devour it. Is, is that right? Well, that's among the Ganges. Yeah. Yeah. And there's there's <laughs> there's there's a. Uh, a Buddhist death doula in Maine who has bought property awesome. and is trying to get a law passed that makes those kinds of of um, funeral pyres legal, that you can burn bodies. And I brilliantly said, that is never going to pass. And somebody corrected me and said, no, I think she's getting the votes. So it hasn't passed yet, but somebody said there's oh, support this for cool. this. So you could burn the body out in nature, you know, so that you don't have the, you know, they embalm bodies that, that go into cremation. Mm -hmm. So there's mm -hmm. the chemicals and then there's the high heat and the disturbance to the atmosphere. But this way you can burn the body. <laughs> well, and you, you said, um, yeah, on page six, page 61, you say, or you're quoting, I forget who you're quoting, but it's practice for death. Learning how to surrender to the unknown prepares us for our own experience of dying without fear. And so, 
I, I find myself curious about getting a little deeper into your experience of these elder, these women um, facilitators, um, priestesses. I, I think because I. <laughs> it's loud. Um, the 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 priestesses who are facilitating these experiences, and so would you talk a little bit about the ceremonial aspect, or and kind of more of the process that they're facilitating? What what did you learn about how they uh, how they facilitate? I didn't ask them how to questions. That's too psychological. I'm, that's that. too psychotherapist psychotherapist shit right there is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. Um, you know, this isn't a how-to book. I didn't want anybody thinking they could learn this that way. And there are some books out that are how-to books. So what I would say is what I learned about how they work is that they worked on themselves for a really long time hmm. with these medicines and that, and that they continue to. That's their ongoing process is that they work on themselves with these medicines. But... um. One of them was horrified when I, she asked, well, don't, don't psychotherapists have their own psychotherapy? And I said, not necessarily, it's yeah. not required. And she just could not believe it. She was either. horrified. Yeah. So, you know, the, 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 the commitment is very strong that the women work on their own, their own histories, their own case histories with the medicines for a good number of years. And, and maybe in that process, they might begin to work with other people with the medicines, but that's after maybe five years or so. And, and I can quote from one of the women who um, was trained by an indigenous shaman, and this is sort of symbolic of all of them. And she said that after six years, I mean, you know, I want you to get there's a process here. After six years, the shaman said to her, you can begin to sing now. And she said, no, I'm not ready. Mm -hmm. And she waited a whole extra year. And then when she began to sing, she knew all the songs and she would sing them just a, a fraction of a nanosecond right behind the shaman. She would, and it, this was an apprenticeship. She sat at his elbow and sang just, a, you know, a, a split second behind him. And so there's a, a process of learning how to work with these medicines. And in that process of working on their own case histories, they took, and this is where they're just braver than I am, they'll take anything, basically, <laughs> is they took all the medicines and all the doses. I'm like squeamish. You know, I don't do that. So, you know, I am not one of them. <laughs> I'm terrified of most things. They are really afraid of nothing. They are warriors. And so, you know, one woman was talking about the value of smaller doses, not not micro doses, but just you don't have to take, you know, heroic doses all the time. And there's value in the smaller doses and you can remember more and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And then she paused and she says, but sometimes I just like to fly. Yeah. Well, I had this image of her leaping off of a garage roof, you know, as a child. It's like, I, was, I was never a child to do that. <laughs> I, I was not one of those kids who, who, you know, flew off a roof with a cape on their back. <laughs> That's not what I did. <laughs> so, you know, I'm really, I, I, my lane is to interview them and write things down. 
And they were just very, they were very brave and out there. And, you know, one of them in her late 80s said, you know, I haven't had ketamine in a long time. I think I should do that again. I mean. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, they're they're really, I think of them as spiritual warriors. Well, I want to introduce a narrative that I hear a lot, and this is about kind of your hint right there of a word of caution, but also back to what you were talking about a while while ago on ego inflation or inflation that's happening. That I hear often about folks with um, treatment, you know, quote, treatment-resistant depression and anxiety, who when asked if they've done a ketamine-assisted therapy, they would say, yeah, but I probably took 25 milligrams intranasally and then uh, was sat in a room by myself for 45 minutes and then you know, never had any, like, that's what's happening, right? Because you have a psychiatrist who says, yeah, I'll integrate this into my practice. Again, it's a medicinal, you know, take the medicine, sit there, you can't drive for 45 minutes. So just sit on your ass and let the medicine do its work. And then come out and maybe we'll talk about it. And I speak to that. Now we're back to that materialist approach. It's the chemical. Yes, all kinds of things are happening that I'm that it's a stretch for me. I'm hearing from people in their, I'm sorry, but what I call the younger generation who are in their forties. Um, <laughs> I know it's terrible <laughs> that they're doing, they're doing journeys alone. Mm-hmm. And I think, Oh, that's, that's kind of scary to me. What if there's an emergency, but also they're missing that support mm-hmm. and that relationship container and they're missing someone and this is if I go back to, well, how did the women develop the capacity to do this work is through all their own experiences with the medicine and work on themselves, they developed a really deep presence of from an inner intuitive sense of knowing the territory so that they can sort of, <clears throat> with very little visual cue- clues, what's happening to the person, they can kind of follow them and go with them. Um, and, and that to be accompanied in that kind of way with someone right nearby, but someone who can also kind of travel with you in this intuitive way so that you're not alone out there. There's this sense of being held in this relationship. I think that is enormously healing in itself. I mean, what therapist doesn't believe in, 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 in the healing nature of the relationship. I mean, this is the, yeah, this is the nature of psycho. And so here's just a different version of it. And these women are, you know, they, they're very intuitive and it's not the kind of intuition that develops, you know, when people come up to me and say, well, I've, I've had a half a dozen ceremonies with grandmother ayahuasca and she's told me I can lead ceremonies and I'm, I'm just speechless. I don't know what to say to them. It's like, no, don't do that. <laughs> In six years, you can begin to sing. <laughs> so say more, because this is what I'm hearing a lot. You know, that yes. this is happening all the time. All the time. You know, my my colleague and old friend, dear friend, I had dinner last night with, and I was talking about psychedelics with her, and she runs a group practice. And she laughed and said, yeah, I used to pick mushrooms off cow shit when I was in high school and run around all over the place, you know? And... But but I my question for the table was, have any of you been guided? 
and no, n- only one person had actually. Um, so often, because I think the culture doesn't support the religious process, th- this kind of relationship dynamic that you're talking about, we end up, of course, we seek out alternate states of consciousness. That's inherent in our existence. But without yes. any container to do so, we just go fucking around and find it on cow shit and take, you know, like six grams or something on a Saturday night. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm trying to be open. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to become a grumpy old person. (laughs) (laughs) And so here's my approach. You know, for those of us who have been therapists all all our lives, which you're well on your way to, we know there are a lot of different therapists out there. Yeah. Right? There's a whole smorgasbord of people offering psychotherapy. And how do we... How does a naive person seeking therapy distinguish one from another? Not easily. And even referrals are not a great way always. So I think the same thing is the situation with the medicines. Is there a lot of people offering them, doing them in many different ways? And people are going to have to be very selective. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you, these women practice in a very serious way. They do extensive screening of um, medical history and current medicines and they know people lie, and they have ways of asking questions to kind of get more truthful responses out of them uh, about previous diagnoses or hospitalizations or what their medical, their prescribed drugs have been for crises or whatever. Um, so I tell people, if, if someone's invited you to a ceremony and nobody's done any medical screening, don't go. Mm-hmm. You know, something as simple as that. You want to know how many people are there, how long the person in charge has been working. Is, you know, are they alone with a group of 30? <laughs> and oh, you hear about this. There are lots of questions. <laughs> but you hear about these stories of folks that fall into spaces like that. Yeah. And then, and then because I come from, uh, you know, in the last 20 years, more ayahuasca ceremonies mm-hmm. with an indigenous shaman. Um, I understand and val- so value from my heart. It's so deep in me, the healing and and the power of the Icaros that are sung live. And then, you know, I just remember this telephone conversation. This is years ago. And I said, and what was the music? what music was played and he said oh we had we had a great cd and i'm going to begin to pull my hair out and um and yet this guy had an incredible experience oh yeah yeah so the medicines do work in many different situations i hope not i hope there's little harm i mean i hope people are held safely and I hope for the best. And I and I'm trying to be kind of more accepting and and not critical of everyone. <laughs> but it's worrisome. It's really worrisome. I don't want a repeat of emergency room visits and and people harmed. And people can be harmed for the rest of their lives. Not that many, but if it's you, it's one too many. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and and there there this is beginning to be written about in some of the professional journals. Say more. 
there there were a couple of articles I came across recently of just singular case studies of someone who's who is is has uh has been harmed by a, a psychedelic experience then the harm has lasted either anxiety or depersonalization mm-hmm. or um uh, uh, that hallucinate hallucination persisting hallucinations that goes on for years and when i talk to some of the old timers men and women they're all concerned about this they're all concerned about emergencies and people being harmed they're concerned about safety it's a it's a well <laughs> there can be a lot of unsafety in these spaces because when you're talking about you know the one of the things we were referencing is this experience of death you know like you've had enough experience of death that you're ready for death if you die before you die um that means you're in you're going to be playing in a world where risk is 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 there i mean there's no way to prevent risk no no so i i can talk for a minute about um my interview with Ann Shulgin, who died about a year and a half ago, yeah. maybe something like that. And she did a lot of um, work. She always denied that she did underground work, but of course she did. And um, she worked and experienced a lot of different medicines along with her husband. Um, and uh, this is the famous Shulgin family. And, and she talks about the death door that the death door will appear in a journey and that this is very real and that this is part of her contract with a client before they do a journey together is you have to um, make a commitment to not go through the death door because it is possible to die during a ceremony Mm -hmm. and and she says that would bring harm to you and harm to me and so you have to this is part of the agreement is that you will not go through the death door. It's a very interesting conversation to have and to acknowledge that, um, that these medicines, that there's a relationship between these medicines and the process of dying Mm -hmm. and that the, the element of dying is very present. And I, I think because I've had, all these years of ayahuasca ceremonies, which is the vine of the dead, and it's it's there's a lot of death imagery that comes with ayahuasca. Is when I did <clears throat> I did an MDMA. That's the that's the medicine I took when I worked with one of the elders with music and and earphones and eye shades, and I thought, well, this is going to be fun. <laughs> MDMA ecstasy. It's going to be fun. I had all this death imagery. Oh wow. And it was not fun, and it was still helpful. It was not a bad trip. It was just not a fun trip. (laughs) But I had a lot of death imagery, and it felt very similar to the ayahuasca space. And um, I'm in that stage of life where it behooves me to prepare for death. I'm not, I don't have a terminal diagnosis, but, you know, people are dying all around me who are even younger than I am. So, you know, there's a hint here. And so I don't think we really know to make peace with death until we're in that situation facing it immediately. A friend of mine calls it the final exam. (laughs) And I I think it is. We have a lifetime to prepare for the inevitability, and we never know. 
but I think the medicines are a wonderful way to prepare. Yeah, you said a second ago that these medicines seem to be, I forget how you said it, but deeply connected with the process of dying. You know, there's a point in many journeys where you just have to let go and it feels like dying. And or where you just lose every remnant of who you think you are. Um I had I had a client who who died of cancer while she was in my practice and her I remember her father's she was only in her 40s and I remember her father's talk at the memorial service and and uh it was a huge auditorium of her friends and the father said one of the hardest things about her dying was saying goodbye to you and and he was saying to this auditorium full of her friends and that she was having to let go and lose all her friends it was it was a loving sad statement it was just and it was a very intimate description of her process and uh and so the process of dying is you know losing everything it's everything and 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 then ourselves and and whatever we hold most dear about who we think we are mm -hmm. and i think the the medicines are practice for that and it's so sad it's sad and it's what it's also what leads to that mystical experience it That's leads right. to that ego disillusion and to do it in the context of someone holding space for you who can sort of see and sense that happening and be there to witness it. That's very powerful. And I think something happens in that container that does not happen even when it's an ecstatic letting go um, in, in nature. It's different. Yeah, as you were talking about the, when I said it's sad, the this idea came to mind about how often we as a culture will look at somebody who's sad, who's feeling sadness, and we will say to them, what's wrong? <laughs> That's you know, at, when something very genuine is being expressed, you know, like, and so it, there is a sadness to letting go, and there's a freedom to letting go, and there's a, a resistance to letting go, and we cling to surfaces and you know and these ceremonial spaces too like it's it's very hard to market in our culture the idea of hey by the way why don't you practice dying <laughs> that's a tough sell you know like not not everybody's signing up for that movie or that conversation you know uh, but so many of these traditions that are a part of our human history and other cultures are related, very related and connected to the idea of dying. Yes. This is the sacred, this, the, the sacred, the burial cave where they found the, the remnants in the hair. It's this, the sacred container. God, that's a cool fact. Yes. And, and, and seemingly that culture has set up a process. Yes. This is how you do this. Uh, it, it, I think it's maybe cynical, but it's also this, go on. Sorry, I was going to say this is the story at Eleusis. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah. What were you starting to say? I, I don't know. I, I, <laughs> I, I, I'm flighty, you know, I go quick. Um, <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> but I, I do think that, you know, our culture has within it an orientation of convenience and comfort. And, and so to expose oneself, even that piece, like what's wrong? Like, there's something wrong to feel these darker emotions that are often filled with discomfort. And there, there's nothing wrong. In fact, there's probably something right. You know, like if I work with people all the time who are, um, even if they wanted their relationship to end, let's say they've been in a relationship for three to five, 10 years, and they're ready, they wanted it to end, and they are sad. Uh, if anything, I would say that's a good thing. Like, yeah, you were invested in a relationship and you're grieving the loss of this and your life is changing and things are moving and shifting and it's not going to be the same. And all the dreams that you had together are are dissolving and you have to go through a process, hopefully, of taking an inventory of how you've allowed this person to matter in your life. And so there's nothing wrong with feeling sad. Um, but but then what happens is people in avo in avoidance of that sadness they get back together in a relationship that's really not serving them because they feel like something's wrong with feeling sadness. And to your point earlier when you were talking about, um, I want to read this quote. Yeah, this is a so page one forty two in in your book. One of the earliest studies gave a shot of a hundred micrograms of LSD to eight to 80 terminal cancer patients in hopes of reducing the anguish and stress of dying. The research findings showed that the patients gained a special type of insight from this experience, making them more responsive to their environment and family, along with a greater acceptance and surrender to the inevitable loss of control. What a different orientation. Yeah, it's very different. Yeah. Okay, I want to jump for a second because I'm conscious of time, but I also want to I want to ask a question that you asked in your table of contents because this feels like a time to shift. Well, I could I I know where you're going because I only had one question there, but I could I want to say something about suffering, please, because what you're talking about is our culture is resistant to suffer. Suffering is bad. Yes, we should feel good all the time. <laughs> and, um, uh, yeah. And so I have some quotes from the women on that, because I think this is really a big deal. <clears throat> Suffering, learning how to be here in a physical body in this world is the biggest teacher. Hmm. And one woman said, no one skips dismemberment. <laughs> I, I want to click on, I want you to keep going, but I want to follow back up on that. I know that's a great one. Yeah. And and then just how do we work with things that are difficult? I mean, this is this is what I consider after the ceremony. How, what have we learned from this experience that then we can live in a way that's different? Mm -hmm. And in relationship to these big issues that are part of life, like suffering and dying, and and sadness and heartbreak and, and the whole range of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, when it brings up the suffering piece, but also um, dismemberment, 
yeah. you're, you have an, an experience of dismemberment. I do. Yeah. And yeah. could you speak about that? Do you talk about that? Yeah. You know, part of what's interesting about that is I was, I was, I was in a, um, in just a little group of good friends, uh, January one, where we got together for a couple of years and, um, one year, so it was, uh, 20, 2020, you know, the January before the, uh, the um COVID hit and we we just we did a little med meditation together and we did drawings together and I drew something that looked like a piece of shit it was brown it was a lump you know I'm not a very good artist but I could draw a piece of shit <laughs> and we talked about our drawings and I put it away. I saved it because I believe in drawings. You know, Jung did beautiful drawings. I, I drew a piece of shit. Three months later, I have a standard colonoscopy, just a regular one. And they, they say, well, you have a, a mass in your colon mm -hmm. and you have to get it out. So it they didn't say you have a piece of shit in your colon, but I certainly got the right location. <laughs> Right. And and I didn't I didn't understand that drawing until I got this diagnosis. So I was in California at the time and I flew back to the um, this is a, this is an advertisement for Sloan Kettering, <clears throat> the cancer hospital in New York. So they they cut me open from hip to hip. I mean, they just flayed me horizontally. They didn't find cancer and they took out a mass. And the mass would have killed me because it would have blocked my colon mm -hmm. eventually because it was growing. It was it was large. It was going in that direction. Um, but I th I think it took a whole year to recover from that surgery, and 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 yes, it was re it really felt like a dismemberment. They took a lot of stuff out. You know, they took ovaries out, which was a good idea. But I remember going into the gynecologic surgeon who took the ovaries out, and I said to him, why did you make such a big incision? And he said, it wasn't me. I didn't do that. <laughs> it was the GI surgeon. You know, there were two surgeons and robotics working. It was a five-and-a-half-hour surgery. Holy took God. me a long time to recover. And part of what helped, this is my own personal process, is and this I talk about in the book, and I'm embarrassed to talk about, I'm not embarrassed to talk about the piece of shit drawing I did or the flaying me open surgery, but I'm embarrassed to talk about something I don't understand at all. And that is that I did these ayahuasca ceremonies on Zoom with a family of three shaman in Peru. And they drank in Peru. They were We were connected to them in the United States on Zoom. And they sang, there were just three of us in this little group. And they sang, each each shaman sang to each of the three of us. So it would go on for hours because each shaman would sing for 20 to 30 minutes. And the elder brother is very powerful. He's in his late 40s, trained by his father, as many shaman are. And I could feel the songs cleaning me out on the inside of my pelvic girdle right where the surgery was you know they opened me from girdle to girdle it's horizontal mm. 
and I could feel the energy moving around inside. You know, if you look at a skeleton, you know, that girdle is like a bowl. I could feel that the singing clean me out. This is part of my own value of the Icaros and the energy that does the medicine work inside the body. And uh, I forget what your question was, but but this was clearly a dismemberment. I couldn't think straight for a year. I didn't write a page. And my editor was, you know, very um, kind and didn't bother me about it and had faith in me. But I just couldn't focus or concentrate. The The effect of the anesthesia was pretty heavy. And so this was a, really an important part of my healing. And how do I, as a Westerner, you know, tied to materialism, how do I talk about this healing that I experienced over Zoom with no medicines involved and no no chemicals in my system? Mm-hmm. You know, tell that to the research scientists who think it's the chemical, yeah, <laughs> the it molecule. Doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. And this is, this is I, I do, I borrow from Jeff Kripal here where he says, I'm not saying that the materialist model is untrue or false i'm saying it's incomplete it's not enough and we have to have a bigger vision so when just to push on this a little bit when you when you talk about dismemberment you know you have the literal severing of your colon the cutting open of your body the they removed they removed one third of the colon oh my gosh yeah talk about dismemberment yeah like that image of dante you know like uh, i forget who did it but you're you know being yes got ripped open and so that's not just a metaphor. No. But it's also not just material and physical. No. And when when you think about what the healing mechanism of that dismemberment how did that serve you? What what happened? Well, it's not that that served me. It's how did I work with my relationship to that process and that experience because when you go to a cancer hospital you know you're you know your face I mean I remember sitting there with the surgeons and they were talking about you know I had different things going on I had and I said well you know one of these things is going to kill me (laughs) they're like well we don't know that you know it's not exactly reassuring we don't know that till we get in there, you know. So it's it's no question. It's a confrontation with my own mortality, and I have to say, you know, you think I would be tied to my daughter and to my um, my grand my grandson who was newly born, but I was really I was like, you know, I can't go. I have to finish this book. <laughs> I don't really say this to my daughter, but it it was this book. I felt such a mission and commitment to the book and so it turned out to be benign and i don't have cancer and there's really no you know there was no chemo there was no follow-up of course so it was just a a lump that was removed so i'm perfectly i'm fine and it was quite a big thing to go through and so what was my um relationship to all the feelings that came up with that and to the suffering hmm. and um and my relationship my own commitment to wanting to live and 
what's important what are what's important to me in my life what's my priority and uh so it was a it was a major kind of cleaning out in a way of uh of being a, a of what's important and what's not so important and I, I think I'm just like I, we're different after any ceremony. I mean, in a way, this was a dismemberment ceremony in modern medicine. Um, is, is that the work is in my relationship to what was happening. It wasn't about what was happening. It was in how do I handle and contain and hold what's happening? And what does this mean in my life? And how did I do a drawing of this before it was diagnosed? What what part of me knew? And And then the emergence of gratitude because I would have... Um, if I hadn't, this is my little advertisement for colonoscopies. If I hadn't had the colonoscopy and this, um, mass had grown and blocked my colon, I, I would have died. I, I, I would have thought I was just constipated mm -hmm. and I, you know, I might not have gone for, for, for medical care. I would have taken you know, I would have eaten prunes or something like that. I wouldn't have known. And especially I live on this remote island, you know, hours from inadequate medical care. Um, you know, so my choice when with the colonoscopy gave me the choice to go to the best cancer hospital, one of the best in the world. So the gratitude is a great healer. And that's part of my relationship to what I faced and went through and and had to carry. And then the bigger mm -hmm. question mm -hmm. I had <clears throat> is, and this is my own inner process, is I think I've had more surgeries than most people for one thing or another. Without ever being really sick, I've been healthy most of my life, but I've had surgeries for one thing or another, and, and now I'm going to have a knee replacement this fall. And so I have to say, well, is there a relationship between, you know, the, the ACE scale? This is very, mm -hmm. um, this is very in process here. So, yeah. but I think it's an example of how people work with their histories of their whole life and the medicines are intertwined in my life. So it's not like this is therapy or part of my research knowledge and that it's separate from the medicines. It's all woven together. And so, you know, the ACE scale, the adverse childhood experiences, I score very high on that from childhood trauma. And that's often related to adult um, uh, health issues. And so I have to say, well, if I had more surgeries than most people my age, because I had a high score in childhood trauma, and then how have the medicines worked with that? Because we all know the medicines work with that. They do work um, with the, the childhood histories. 
and they do work with healing and and clearing that stuff out and helping. And part of the way they help is they allow for a different relationship for me to have a different relationship to my own case history, my own story of my family of origin and growing up so that there's a shift in the way that I hold that. So psychotherapy enabled me to understand it in many ways, but the medicines helped me to have a shift in the way I hold my own history. And that's qualitatively different. It's not understanding or insight. It's a shift in the way I hold it. Mm -hmm. And that allows me to have more space and more freedom so that when this surgery came up, I was able to hold it in a bigger in a bigger sense of myself and my life in the world. And to see it as a dismemberment and that there was a long, you know, with any kind of initiation, there's a removal from your daily life. That's the first phase of the initiation. You go into retreat or you go into a hospital then there's this extended liminal period where you're not back in your world yet, but you know you're not the same. You're qualitatively different. And I had a very long recovery, and this was a long liminal period. And then to come out of that and back into the world and pick up my life again. And th- and it coincided with COVID where we were all home for months and months. I mean, I, I I was visiting my daughter in Manhattan. The streets were empty. There was no traffic. Everybody was home. And that that was, we were all in that liminal holding period where we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know if we're going to live or die or who we are in a way or who we're going to be. And so my own experience coincided with that cultural experience. Well, and this is a, well, I can't imagine. I mean, I can't. I can imagine, given what I do, and certainly as a human being, I can empathize and mentalize your experience. But this this brings up something powerful, which is that you know, what we're talking about on some level is this inflation of the psychedelics and this kind of belief system that it's a panacea. You know that like it can, you know. Do I actually heard that from somebody once that one of the disqualifiers um, is for people is if you have people you're doing work with that believe that psychedelics are going to cure whatever is happening. And that's back to this psychotherapeutic bias that um, I will be cured as opposed to have a religious experience and then have a transformed way of relating to connecting with and carrying my lived experience. But you're yes. you're bringing up important factors. I mean, we could go sit in the dark in a cave, you know, speaking of the underground, you know, for right. an extended period of time. We can get together in community and and be connected with each other. We can go through these health-oriented experiences that challenge the belief that the the assumptions on some level that are excuse me, that our ego makes that we can just live forever and always exist. But there is some, 
there is something, I, I think you'll agree with this, and please tell me if you don't, there is something magical about entheogens and psychedelics and the process that they can um, bring about when facilitated in the ways that we're talking about, which is, which is not so much to go have that experience there, but go have that experience and then live in a conscious way with the visionary unseen others that we carry with us that changes how we live into our natural process of suffering and loving and dying and being a, a human. Do you have any way to push on that? Well, I, I think that's the whole point. Yeah. I think that's the whole, I mean, the medicines, the plants, this is the shaman said to me that it was translated, of course, um, the plants are here to help you. Now, what does that help look like? And I think it looks like being bigger in how <laughs> we relate to our lives and to the world. Not, and, not just being more productive? No, that's not <laughs> quite what I meant. <laughs> um, that there's more spaciousness yeah. inside. And that um, there's more fluidity between... Uh, you know, an inner experience, even an inner surgical experience, and the unseen world outside ourselves, mm. that that there's an openness and a permeability and a fluidity. So that it, it, and this I say about these women, they have a different way of being in the world because of all their medicine work. They are different in, in the way they are in the world. And it's very hard to say exactly how they're different, but it has to do with this. There, there's a permeability with this other world, yeah. And that, and that, you know, the swimming in the sacred is from um, a song that um, wait a minute um, that Maria Sabina sings the cor mm -hmm. the Mexican corandero mm -hmm. with the mushrooms, the magic mushrooms. Mm -hmm. I, and the, the lyrics are, I am a woman who swims in the sacred. There's this sense of living in this, mm. in this world that, that, that permeates the material world, but that the material world is not everything. There's this other world coexisting, interpenetrating the material world. And there's an openness between the inner, inner, inner body and the outside world and and a permeability and an exchange i mean there's it just it there, so that there becomes a fluidity in the sense of the body boundary and the ego it's no longer such a rigid structure now the other side of this is these medicines loosen up these body boundaries and ego structures and then people transgress you know, they invade other people in one way or another. They cross boundaries or they take advantage of people. So there are other ways this can be distorted. But um, but the opportunity is there to have this more fluid way of being alive in this world. And I think that leads to um, a more flexible, fluid way at, when death approaches. What a gift that would I'll be. See. I'll see. I'll see. Yeah. As we all will. As we, yeah, as we all will. Well, yeah. uh, 
I want to be, again, mindful of time, but I, I do want to ask that question that you asked in your table of contents in one of your chapters. What the hell is integration? Anyway. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> Good. Well, because this you does... The whole thing. You have to get the quote right. <laughs> let, let, yeah, because let, let's set it up. You know, you're talking about having a radical visionary experience, being held in a ceremonial space, and then having the opportunity to cultivate this relationship with whatever happened, whether it's a death experience or the meeting of a sacred animal or, a, you know, a jaguar, you referenced that certainly, but um, so what the hell is integration anyway? I think it's life. I mean, I, this in the biggest <laughs> sense, I think it really is this opportunity to grow and evolve and, and develop throughout the whole lifespan. And, and including that the lifespan includes the process of dying. I, I just, I never thought there was anything better to do. I thought this was what it was all about. You know, my father was a businessman. He thought differently. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, he thought it was, you know, about the numbers and making money. But that never, that was never my value. It was always about this, this inner growth and development. And, and integration in the largest sense is about how we relate to this life that we're given. And, and, and here, here are the quotes that I, that, and this is really current for me. Um, one woman, so here, this is what, this is what to look for in integration. For someone who, to say thank you for everything is a hard place to get to. And that's really big gratitude to say thank you for everything for me to say thank you to this surgery. <clears throat> I watch for a shift in how the person embraces being alive. And these are different women, but they're speaking to the same question. And I think that ultimately this is what integration should, which should, should be this big, should keep this in mind, not just, are you less depressed? <laughs> You know, not yes. just symptom-oriented questions. How to live on this earth and be joyful and after we talked about suffering. You know, how we relate to suffering and dismemberment is part of the lessons here. How to live on this earth and be joyful. These are all quotes in the book, by the way. Anne Shulgin, <clears throat> say yes to everything that is. Yeah, let's do that. Right. <laughs> I, you know, I, I will say yes as soon as I'm aware how uh, powerful my no has been, because you know? <laughs> it is that resistance that immediately the threat, the concern, the, and I think that's that's what you were writing about with in Shogun and MDMA. You know, the the way our threat system isn't isn't activated with MDMA and how we can accept reality as it is with that openness, just mm -hmm. for a minute. That's a radical proposition. And then how and then how do we learn from that? Yeah. And embody that. One of the ways that I, I think uh, 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 an idea that my wife and I enacted was that we created a marriage altar, which was pretty powerful. You know, that we we've, we've um, got an altar to our family and to our marriage, and it's it's positioned our, our the way in which we live our lives in a different way, you know, before having it. There's a pre and post, you know, but, 
and and once we built the altar it and it's got pictures of our kids and sacred objects and 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 that just to give a bit of a concrete example of how you change your life is is to is to build an altar and i my, a lot of my most religious and powerful spiritual experiences have to do with an altar and am i tending the altar am i mindful of the altar have i cleaned the altar you know like in in li my literal altar because i have a couple of them at home or the metaphorical one that is you know my my worldview my way of existing how i'm carrying my suffering and i find that the two things are are quite related when i start being conscious of my altar at home it's when i'm being conscious of the altar inside that creates a sacred space so that i think that's a that's a concrete way that i certainly have tried to bring some of these experiences into the uh, the consensus reality to change how we live in community that's a wonderful example and that's part of what i mean by <clears throat> the interpenetration, the permeability between the inner world and the outer world. And and one feeds the other. And you're and you're creating a sacred container for your marriage and your family. It's really quite wonderful. And and our culture uh doesn't do this all that well. No, we forget I think we forget that our altars don't have to be in the religious institutions. Right. You know, they they are what we want to attend to in meaningful ways. There are also really powerful re reasons why the marriage tends to happen in religious spaces because that's a religious process. And what's so sad about this well, sad and valuable that the underground exists because these women are participating in religious process yes and representing the 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 sacred space of confrontation with these for the inevitable forces that overpower us and uh, and and create the reality that reality is much larger than than we are and we're all beholden to death for example uh, I I want to start closing out because um, this feels like a good time to do so. And I do want to open it up and just ask what little threads might still be lingering that you'd like to pick up on that may have been dropped or anything else you'd like to bring into our conversation today. Well, I just, I just want to say I have great gratitude toward these women. I changed as a process of interviewing these women and I dedicate the book to them. And, um, I value the experiences I've had with them, just interviewing them. Mm -hmm. And there were a couple of different times when I I had uh, an altered, expanded consciousness experience without any medicines involved. Mm -hmm. And I, I can give an example of this um, one incident. I was interviewing two Native American women and I spent the whole day with them from like 10 in the morning to nine at night. And as I was leaving and I had an hour to drive back to where I was staying, they said to me, <clears throat> do you need to use the bathroom before you go? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> so <laughs> that immediately gave them a clue that I was out of touch. With Come on and body. take a seat right here. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So they sent me to the bathroom. I, I peed. 
I came back. And then we had we had spent most of the day talking in the dining room. We went out to dinner. We went for a walk. And then we came back to the dining room. And I hadn't really noticed there was a door off the dining room that was closed the whole time. I, I, I think I figured it was a closet. I didn't pay any attention to it. I come out of the bathroom. And they take me to this door. And it leads to their ceremonial room mm-hmm. with all their sacred objects, mm-hmm. which I would not have noticed. You know, they didn't invite me into it until I shifted consciousness. And then they worked on me with different fan feathers and did clearing. Mm. And I don't remember everything. They did a lot of work on me (laughs) and sent me on my way to drive home for an hour. And I thought, this is such an interesting phenomenon in itself that as an interviewer, I would have missed this completely. But as someone who shifts consciousness states of consciousness rather easily i gained entrance to this ceremonial room Mm. and this happened more than once in one way or another with different women and i feel like this is you know sort of the tip of the iceberg of how i was changed and i feel that the that my worldview is far more is is far more open than uh before i started this project that it's that i'm no longer quite as tied as a westerner to the materialistic worldview i'm not you know i'm not free of it (laughs) but i'm less limited by it well you brought a gift yeah it's it's a wonderful gift because i had never realized how stuck i was on cause and effect and (laughs) And the material word, let's measure this. And and so I feel far more fluid in my life as a result and have a much greater appreciation for that. And this is very Jungian, that relationship of, you know, I think this is part of what he called synchronicity, that relationship of what's going on inside to what's happening out in the outer yeah. world and and that the, that one influences the other back and forth. Yeah, the a causal principle is what he said. Yeah. <laughs> totally disrupting the the this kind of narrative of cause and effect that we both yeah. as westerners right. and certainly as psychotherapists. Right. Well, it's really nice to turn the kind of table on you and uh, be the researcher questioning you as you questioned all these ceremonial folks. Right. And I I just can't tell you how grateful I am that uh, for this opportunity to read your work. Um, thank you so much for this contribution that you're providing to us and the world. And it's just a joy, Rachel, always to connect with you. And I, I just thank really you, appreciate who you are and what you've done. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And of course, I'll have... I'll direct everybody to your website and your book, and I'm uh, I'm feeling grateful. Thank you. Thank you. Love, 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 love.